things will get better, just give it time, or this is all part of God's plan. Everything's going to be all right. Uh, there are other fish in the sea. Uh, she wasn't right for you anyway. Thoughts and prayers, where we stand with you. You know most of these well-worn classics. Maybe you've used them. Uh, something has gone horribly wrong. Someone you love is suffering, and you can't fix it, and so you try to speak a comforting word. Uh, so often, unfortunately, these words ring just a little bit hollow, or worse than hollow. They can be unintentionally hurtful. We can speak in a way that instead of bringing the intended comfort only adds to the pain and the distress of those who are suffering. I mean, have you ever been in a horrible situation, the bad news comes and you have no words and yet something deep inside you feels like I should be saying something and so then you venture off and try. It sure feels at times like these words are empty. I mean, what kind of words can be spoken when someone says things to you like, you know, I'm dying, or she's leaving, or I just destroyed my career, or I trusted the wrong people and I lost it all, or I've fallen into sin again. I mean, what comfortable words can be spoken to someone who finds themselves in the dark? What hope is there to offer in this life that at times leads us into the unlit alleys that don't seem to offer an easy way out. What can we say? What sort of words can be spoken? Well, I want to answer that question, or at least seek to do so this morning, as we look at Isaiah chapter 40. And what I want us to see first is dark days, dark days. Uh, if we're just looking at what is during this Advent season, if we open our eyes wide and we kind of just take in the world as it is, uh, I don't imagine that many of us find a lot of comfort in the times in which we live. Uh, you know, this doesn't feel, I think, to most of us like, you know, the high point of human history. Uh, we live in a time of moral upheaval. There's clearly political angst and uh, plenty of economic uncertainty. But what is possibly more concerning is that it doesn't feel like there's, you know, a clear turnaround coming anytime soon. It doesn't seem like there's some uh, great Savior on the horizon that's going to deliver us from it all. It's like the whole world is just waiting for the other shoe to drop, uh, much more than having some sort of you know, blissful optimism about what's coming next. What's harder still, still, and maybe even more immediate, is that we often don't find a whole lot of comfort in our own selves if we even dare to take a look. You know, if we have concerns about the trajectory of our nation, which we should, I would imagine we have just as many concerns about the trajectory of our own being. I mean, we may say of the nation, will it always be this way? But we could just as easily say to ourselves, will I always be this way? You know, will this ever change? I mean, we need hope, as Bob Dylan said, and we need it bad. Uh, and so you'll notice uh, while that's our situation, our text comes in a very similar light. It's, this is the darkest period uh, of Israel's history, or at least it's about to be the darkest period of Israel's history. Judah has just been informed in the previous chapter of Isaiah that everything that she has ever been and hoped for, everything that made her special, 
is all about to be removed from her. The holy city will be overrun. The temple will be emptied and torn down. The people will be taken away from the land. And anyone who's not taken away will remain as a slave. The holy land will be inhabited by enemies as far as the eye can see. And the king of Israel will be led away blinded and impotent. I mean, this is, according to the text, the certain fate of Judah. This is the next chapter of their life. Babylon will come and take away them along with all the riches and majesty that they once possessed. And perhaps most stunning of all is that in the midst of all of this upheaval, God will uproot His own glory from the nation and head off eastward to leave His people behind. I mean, how much darker can it get if you're the nation of Israel? No land, no king, no people, no temple, no God. You know, last one out, turn off the lights. And this is a dark time indeed in the nation's history. But it's into this dark time, into these dark days, that we get what would some would consider some of the brightest words in all of Scripture, which is what I want us to see next, these bright words in Isaiah 40. You'll notice our text comes to us with these booing words of hope right after God has promised Hezekiah that destruction is on its way. I mean, these are some of the most pleasant and comforting words in all of Scripture. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her warfare is over, that it's done, that her sin is pardoned, that it's paid in full. I mean, the juxtaposition between the first 39 chapters of Isaiah and this chapter could not be more stark. I mean, they had just been told that everything that makes you who you are as God's people is going to be undone. Everything you hold dear in this life is going to be taken. Everything that you have ever feared is about to come true. And then they hear this clarion call, you know, of the, of the tenor voice and Handel's version of it anyway, comfort ye my people. I mean, it is a word that seems very out of place in the world in which they live. These words of peace and forgiveness and promises of gentleness and tender dealing from God. These words arrive in the midst of a rubble of the rubble of a war-torn existence that is so from God's own hand based on their own sin. God is telling them to be comforted even though He's going to be the one that brings their distress and tells them that the distress is coming because of their own actions. Now, there's almost an unkind dissonance between what is about to take place shortly, this deportation to Babylon, and this comforting promise about what will come someday in the future. Uh, it's like listening to, you know, what a wonderful world, while watching film of, you know, villages being carpet bombed, much like you see in uh, uh, Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, you know, you see, you hear this, th this beautiful song in the background of hope and optimism and just taking life in the best way possible. And yet on the screen, you see, you know, the depravity of man and man's ill treatment of other men. I mean, there's such a haunting beauty to this 40th chapter of Isaiah. It's a message almost too good to believe 
but even more so when it's laying atop the backdrop of the dark midwinter that is about to settle upon the nation of Israel. But you'll notice Isaiah doesn't flinch. He doesn't just say that God will speak tenderly, but that God will do something so great that Judah can proclaim that the bad days are over, that, that sad times are gone once and for all. All that needed dealing with is done and behind them. I mean, how is that possible? Well, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 40, it is all based on God's arrival. So I want us to see this glorious advent. There are these dark days, there's this bright word, but then it's all based on this glorious advent, this coming of God. Notice it's because God will arrive that everything changes. We hear that uh, first, the, the, this call that they're to go out and they're to go into the wilderness to prepare the way, that there's this uh, road that is to be made in the wilderness. They're to make straight in the desert a highway for God to travel upon. I mean, this, we've talked about this before. This really is, you know, a Caltrans project. This is an engineering feat. Uh, you know, the mountains are to be made low. The valleys are to be brought high. The crooked places are to be made straight. Any rubble that is on the road is to be removed. It really is a preparation for a king's highway. And so they're called out into the wilderness to make this way so that God can arrive Across that barren land that separates Babylon from Israel, if you were to look on a map, you would see it, uh, a road will be paved on which the nation will be led home back to her promised land with God at the head. And this text ends, because this is true, he says, go up to the high mountain and shout this good news. And what's the good news? Behold, it's your God. You know, God has arrived. That's the news that they're waiting for. So there they are sitting in Babylon, and they're going to, you know, send someone up onto the hill, and they see on the horizon God on his march toward them to take them back home. And we see these two arms of God talked about. He's coming in might, right? And his arm will rule for him. So God's coming as this divine warrior to do battle on their behalf, but also he's coming in gentleness and his arms will carry the very weakest among them, those who have been most devastated by what has taken place in exile. He will gently lead those with young and he will carry the lambs in his bosom. I mean, comfort is coming because a way will be made a road that will take them back home, and God's glory will be seen by all, just like in the first Exodus. God will make his glory known to the nations, and he will deliver his people, and he will return them back on this road that they've created into the promised land. And we've seen this glory before, you know, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people shall see it. It's that glory that we saw descend upon Mount Sinai, you know, at least represented in fire and deep smoke and darkness. 
It's the glory that will eventually settle in temple and tabernacle and fill the place with God's glory, again represented often in fire and smoke. Isaiah is foretelling a time when a way will be made and God will appear in all of his mighty glory on their behalf. And when he does so, it will be a comfort for for us because he will be for us. Notice, he's going to fight for them in his strength. He's going to care for them in their weakness. You see, at one level, this really is what Advent is all about. We long for this day, a day where God will come and make everything right, where he'll appear in his glory And he will set things back to the way they were intended to be. He will fight against our enemies. He will care for us. There will be a day where there's, you know, all of our sins are done away with, where sickness and death are no more. There's no more strife. There are no more elections, no more economic ups and downs. There's no more relational trouble. There's no more disease. I mean, that is normally what we think of when we think of God coming in His glory. And that really is part of what Advent's about. We're waiting for God to return. We are looking forward to His second coming, the reality that there is a world that needs to be set right. And that's a lot of what Israel's thinking, too. They're thinking God's going to come. He's going to do it in this mighty way where He sets everything right and everyone can visibly see it. But this particular advent that Isaiah is talking about has already happened. I mean, this prophecy from Isaiah 40 has already been fulfilled. I mean, our gospel reading today shows us the arrival of this day that Isaiah had promised long ago, where God would be revealed in his glory and he would put everything right. Didn't you see it? It was right there on the pages. We do see in the Gospel of Mark, one in the wilderness preparing the road for God. Right? He's calling the nation to repentance and baptizing them. And according to Mark, that's in fulfillment of what Isaiah was talking about. They needed to set their paths straight. They needed to clear out all that was in the way in Israel. And so John calls the nation, all Judea and all Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas, and they all come out and they are baptized by John confessing their sins. And that's in fulfillment of what Isaiah is saying, to make your paths straight. The road is being prepared. And if that's the case, all we're waiting for then is for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. For someone to get up on a high mountain and to say, behold, it's God. And that's exactly what we get. I mean, the very next verse in Mark's gospel, it says, Jesus came out to the Jordan to be baptized by John. God arrives right on the heels of of the way being prepared, just like Isaiah said. Now, of course, this isn't the way any of us would have imagined it, and it's not the way that Israel imagined it, which is why it becomes such a stumbling block for them. Jesus comes out to the Jordan, and even as we see in the other Gospels, you'll notice Isaiah tells us, this is, behold, your God. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
I mean, this is the glory of the Lord being revealed so that all flesh can see it. And we are told in John's gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. But what is striking is what happens next. I mean, if this really is Isaiah's prophecy, if, if, if the road has been prepared, if God is supposed to arrive, then what's supposed to take place next? You know, God is going to, uh, you know, uphold them in strength with his mighty arm. He's going to fight for them, and then he's going to carry them home with his other arm, gently leading those who were with young. What we see is that this God goes down into the dark waters of baptism. He goes into this pool of defilement that all the people have already gone into. If you, if you can imagine metaphorically where all of their sin and all the oil and stain of their life has been you know, left in those waters, Christ joins with them and plunges right in with the rest of them. And this is where we behold the true glory of God. This is where we see both his strong arm and his gentle embrace. And this is the only place where comfort can be found in this age as we wait for the second coming of our Lord. You see, because the God of all glory didn't come into this world to judge the world, but rather in order that the world through him might be saved. And that baptism of our Savior was a foreshadowing of the cross that was to follow. And on that cross, he showed both his arm of might as well as his arm of mercy as he had both of them spread wide and nailed on a cross for us. There he fought against our enemies. And there he gently led those who were unable to lead themselves. It's when we look at the cross that there we behold our God. Even as we sang last week, behold him there upon the cross. He will never shine more gloriously than he does right there for all the world to see. As John Calvin put it in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but it never shines more brightly than in the cross. You see, it is there oddly and strangely we find comfort because there, according to Scripture, is where our warfare ended. It is there that our iniquity is pardoned. Here, we paid in full for all of our sin. I mean, what words of comfort can be spoken in this age? I mean, right now, as we wait for all things to be made right, what words can be spoken that can deal with the pains of this life? I mean, the only words that can really bring comfort are the ones that Christ himself spoke on our behalf, it is finished. Judgment has passed. Your sins are paid in full. Your warfare now is over. And it was all done by Him for you. That is the only complete comfort we have in this life. We have no promise 
that tomorrow will get better than today. We have no, you know, uh, happy-go-lucky songs about everything is going to be all right. Because this age is full of trouble, and even as we confess, is no more than a constant death. God is good to bless us in this age, but it also comes with many sorrows. And some of those sorrows will not be remedied here and now. Many of them won't be. And even in the best of our lives, they all end at the graveyard. The only complete comfort we have in this life is that Christ has battled our enemies on our behalf. And he was tender enough to take us up in his arms and carry us when we could not carry ourselves. And it is enough. It really is finished. And dear Christian, here are the comfortable words that can be spoken. And I would pray that you would hear them and believe them. As our forefathers put it, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, it's almost like they knew these verses. He fights with his powerful arm. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. So Christ comes and on the cross, he fights against our enemy. But not only that, it's on that cross that he holds us in his tender arms like a shepherd. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. You see, our hope in this age is not that it all gets fixed or the right people get elected, or the next job comes, or this or that thing that you're hoping for comes to pass. The comfortable words in this age come from the mouth of our Savior and what He's already done for us, so that whether good or ill, we can know this, that our enemy has been defeated, and no matter what takes place in this life, God is working all things together for our salvation. Not because we deserve it, and not because we fixed ourselves enough to get on his good side, but because he did what we could not do and came into our darkest of days and joined with us in those waters of baptism and fought our fight for us on the cross of Calvary. And he carried us home in his arms as a good shepherd. May that be our hope this morning and as we go through this Advent season. Let us pray.